chapter 2. Two weeks ago, we finished up with verse 11. For God shows no partiality. And that's kind of a summary of the whole paragraph in 6, 1 through 10. Let me go back to verse 6. He will render to each one according to his works. And then he explains it, beginning in verse 7. To those who by patience or by perseverance and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Now that follows the emphasis back in 1 through 5. We're going to read it all in a minute. But there is where Paul has the Jew in mind. And he says, when you judge those pagan Gentiles that he talks about at the end of chapter 1, you're really condemning yourself because you do the very same things. Uh, and he's, he's very blunt with these Jews. Uh, the Jews had the idea... We're better than those Gentiles. We have special privileges. After all, we're the people of God. God would never judge us like he judges those pagan Gentiles. And then in 6 through 11, Paul makes it clear. He will judge according to everyone's deeds. Now that conclusion in verse 11, for God shows no partiality. He is saying... God will not favor the Jews because of their religious background, because of their privileges, and we're going to talk much more about that this morning. They are not exempt from the judgment. Now today we're going to start where we left off. Verse 11 is kind of a transition. It ends the paragraph before, but it really starts the paragraph in verses 12 through 16. It kind of goes with both. So, In verses 12 through 16, uh, Paul is going to defend the truth that God is impartial. Many believe that he is answering objections in these verses, and he may very well be. Now, let me say a couple of things in the way of introduction before we dive into our text for this morning. First of all, this is not an easy paragraph to understand. I just admit... I struggle with some of this. This is difficult. There are some difficult questions to answer as we go through this passage. So I'm not going to be dogmatic about everything, but there is plenty of truth here that is clear that we need to get hold of. Uh, And then the other thing is this. I usually have a pretty clear outline when I preach through a passage, not this morning. Uh, It just all meshes together. So we're simply, as we go through the text, we're going to focus on two main points. So put these in your mind. Number one, God is absolutely fair and impartial in his judgment. God is fair and impartial in his judgment. And then the second point is this. Every individual is accountable to God. And he'll emphasize in this passage that includes both Jew and Gentile. So let's read our text. I just want to start in verse 1 and we're going to read down through verse 16. 
Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you were storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Verse 6, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles, who do not have the law, by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, I acknowledge that there's more here than I can get hold of and understand. But Lord, we're asking that by your Spirit you guide us this morning. You didn't put these words here by accident. They're written to us. So Lord, give us a desire to grasp what you've said. And then work in us so that we might truly understand and then apply these things to our own lives. We'll give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's dive in. Remember those two points. God is absolutely fair and impartial in his judgment. And every individual is accountable to God. Verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Or some translation will say apart from the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. This is the first direct reference to the law in the book of Romans. Now, there's no doubt he's talking about the law of Moses. Ultimately, he's talking about the Old Testament Scripture. And when we think about the law of Moses, we always associate that with the Jews, and rightly so, because God gave them the law. If you go over to chapter 3, he will say the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, another reference to the law. Now, we've already had these references 
to the Jew and the Gentile that we're going to see all through here. Um, He obviously is talking about Jew and Gentile. When he talks about those who have sinned without the law, he's talking about Gentiles. Those who have sinned under the law or literally in the law, he's talking about Jews. Uh, We saw this back up in 116. Uh, the power of the gospel for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. You see it back up in 2, 9 and 10, where he talks about the Jew first, and also the Greek. And now he's going to make this distinction huge in these verses. Uh, Even though he doesn't every time say Jew and Gentile, make no mistake, in verse 12, he's talking about Gentiles who sinned without the law. He's talking about Jews who sinned under the law. Now think about this a minute. Go back to verse 11 again. God shows no partiality. And now, starting in verse 12, he's making this clear distinction. The Jews have the law of Moses. The Gentiles do not. So how can we say he's impartial if he gives the law to the Jews and he doesn't give the law to the Gentiles? Now just just think about that a little bit. Is he really impartial if he's impartial why didn't he give the law to the gentiles as well why did he just give it to the jews doesn't that give the jews an advantage so if you go back to verses 6 through 10 he says he judges impartially on the basis of deeds so that doesn't give the jew advantage but we're thinking wait a minute wait a minute the jews have the law so they know better what he requires So surely that still gives the Jew an advantage. Now Paul is going to dispel that idea. Let me read 12 again. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Now Paul acknowledges that the Gentiles do not have the same access to the law. But that's not all He says, he says that the Gentiles who have sinned without the law will perish without the law. In other words, God's standard of judgment for the Gentile will not be the law of Moses that he has given to the Jews. The Jews, now they will be judged by that law that they have received, but not the Gentile. And we may say, well, the Jews still have an advantage. They've got the law. Come to verse 13. Paul says, For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, the Jews themselves believed that they had an advantage over the Gentiles because they had the law. Uh, they were not only aware that they had the law, but they believed they were God's favorites because they had the law. Because of all God had done for them, especially giving them the law of Moses, they thought they were his favorites. Now, let me pause for a minute. The Jews of that day, they had two great problems. Um, The first one, I'm going to put it in... uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it very clearly. He says this. This is their first uh, problem they had. The Jews considered that they were in a special category and that they did not need 
fear the wrath of God. They thought, furthermore, that they, already being God's people and his favorites, were in this peculiar relationship to him, and therefore, they didn't need to pay any attention to Paul's preaching concerning Jesus as the only way of righteousness in the presence of God. Uh, They didn't see any need for this gospel that Paul was preaching. The second problem they had was this. They had a major problem with Paul preaching that the Gentiles could be saved because they just didn't believe that. Uh, Those pagan no-goods, they cared nothing about them. To talk about them in terms of salvation was ridiculous. Uh, They had a major, major problem with that. So Paul, he challenges these presuppositions that the Jews had in verse 13 when he says, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God. Now, I want to just make a point. That word hear in the Greek language, it could mean just hear, like you're here, you hear the words I say. But it could also mean hearing with understanding. But it's not that way in this case. In this case, it simply means that they had possession of the law. It's not the ones who have the law who are righteous before God. Now, he's, he's talking very clearly here about the Jews. Just because you possess the law, you've heard the law all your life, don't think that makes you righteous before God. Hearing is not enough. Their law itself taught them. No, they must obey the law, not just hear the law. So Paul drives this home. Now, up to this point, God's judgment, he's been talking mainly about his judgment on the Jews here in chapter 2, these self-righteous Jews. By their own law, what it says in their own law, they could not live up to that law. But what about the Gentiles? Since the Gentiles did not receive the law of Moses, does that mean they're exempt from the judgment of God? Well, they didn't have that advantage, so God can't judge them because he didn't give them his law. Well, think about that. Um, Notice back in 12, for all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. So there is judgment for the Gentiles. How is that judgment going to come? Now, notice verse 14. He's speaking about the Gentiles by name now. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Now, that's quite a mouthful. Now, I I need to mention um, that translations will differ here. If you're reading the King James or the New King James, you will notice that verses 13 through 15 are put in a parenthesis. If you're reading the NIV, verses 14 and 15 are put in a parenthesis. Most all other uh, translations don't include a parenthesis. Why do they do that? They do that because they find it hard to connect verse 16 on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. They have trouble connecting that with these verses 13 through 15 because 13 through 15 seem to be talking about more the present where verse 16 is talking about the final judgment. Now, 
in our case, I don't think it's going to make a whole lot of difference, but I just want you to be aware of why it's uh, in parenthesis in some translations. Now, come to verse 15. They, that is the Gentiles, he's talked about in verse 14, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Now, let me ask you a question. When you hear those words in verse 15, the work of the law is written on their hearts. Is there any passage in the Old Testament that comes to your mind? Anybody? Yeah. Uh, I'm going to read it. You can look it up if you want to. Jeremiah chapter 31. This is a passage we uh, associate with the New Covenant. Um, this is Jeremiah 31, 31. And let me read these three verses. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is a covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Some people believe Paul is referring to that passage. Um, Others do not. And one of the reasons we might not think it is, is because in Jeremiah, he talks about the law being written on their hearts. Here he talks about the work of the law being written on their heart. And there is a a difference. The problem with taking this as a reference to Jeremiah is the Gentiles didn't have the law written on their heart. They didn't even have it so they could see it with their eyes or read it. Uh, So the law was not written on their heart because he's talking about the law of Moses. So what does he mean by the work? This is again in verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on on their hearts they didn't have the law of Moses written on their hearts but they did know something about the concepts of the law so let let me give you an illustration Um, even secular authorities will agree they will say that there are certain pagan societies that they have certain deep beliefs and convictions most pagan societies if not all will say murder is wrong Rape is wrong. They will see stealing as a bad thing. Where do they get that? They've they've never read the Bible. Uh, Somehow, in their moral conscience, this is stamped on their hearts. Notice again, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Uh, And then... Uh, Let let me just make this clear. So, when he says, back in 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. When it says they do what the law requires, he's not saying they do everything the law requires, that they perfectly obey the law. Now, let me pause there for a moment. And go back. I point these things out just so you understand. This is not real easy to understand. You see that term by nature right in the middle of verse 14? By nature, 
They do what the law requires. Some translations will say they instinctively do what the law requires. But that phrase by nature, grammatically, it could go with the first part. For when Gentiles who by nature do not have the law do what the law requires. So by nature could mean, well, by their nature they don't have the law. Uh, I don't think it means that. But some would take it that way. But most every translation will take it the way we have in the NIV. By nature, they do what the law requires. By nature. In other words, this consciousness is in them. Uh, it's, it's instinctive. They have this work of the law stamped on their hearts. Though they've never read it in the Bible, it's still there. Uh, as clear as the law of Moses? No. But there are certain concepts. And, and this is supported by the last part of 15. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So sometimes this moral consciousness will convict them what you are doing is wrong. Sometimes it will confirm them that what you're doing is right. So this does not mean when it says they do what the law requires, that they perfectly obey every commandment in the law of Moses. That's not what it means. But there's enough of it there in their moral consciousness. Basically what it comes down to, there's enough there that they will be judged. But they will not be judged by the law of Moses. All who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. Now, you're saying, this stuff gets really deep. It does get really deep. Now, I want to I make it really clear again. Is he is not saying that the Gentiles who do not have the law do every single thing that the law requires. Now, let's go back over Paul's argument up to this point. God is absolutely fair and impartial. Every individual will stand accountable to God, both Jew and Gentile. The Jew will be judged on the basis of the law he has received, the Old Testament law. The Gentile will be based on what's been revealed to him, not what's in the Bible, but the concepts from there that are stamped on his heart, the work of the law on his heart. There will be no partiality, no favoritism. God will judge fairly. Man will be without excuse. The Jews will not be exempt from the judgment because they have the law. The Gentiles will not be exempt from the judgment because they do not have the law. All are accountable. Now, I want you now to come back to verse 13. We focused on the first part. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, he's primarily in verse 13. The emphasis is he's supporting what he said in verse 12. And at first, he's talking about the Jews. He wants to make sure we understand that just because the Jews possess the law and they've heard it all their lives, that does not mean that they're righteous before God. He doesn't stop there. But the doers of the law will be justified. And I take it that it's very significant that he doesn't say 
are justified, as he does about the Jews, are righteous. But he says, will be justified. I think he's talking about the last day judgment that he's going to hit again in verse 16. The doers of the law will be justified. Now, we have to think about that. How do we understand that? Some would take it that it, it's, you just read it at face value. Those who perfectly obey the law will be justified. The problem with that is it goes against everything Paul says. You remember in 3.20, no human being will be justified by works of the law. So it seems pretty obvious that's not what he's saying. Some people, this is probably the most common interpretation. They take it as a hypothetical statement. Uh, The idea goes something like this. They would read it, For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, but they would say, but that we understand they can't really do it. Uh, So it's hypothetical. We know that no one can actually do that. Um, So so the argument goes uh, something like this. I I wrote this down because it's hard for me to to get hold of it. The, The argument goes like this. This is a principle, not a reality. Sinless, perfect law keepers would be justified if there were any, but they don't exist. So he's saying that all people, both Gentiles and Jews, are under judgment and need the gospel of forgiveness through Jesus Christ in order to be saved. Now, um, we would certainly agree with some of that. We would certainly agree there are no no people who perfectly keep the law of Moses. And we would say, yes, everyone needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. But is that what Paul is saying in this verse? So I want to ask you a question. When he says in, at the end of verse 13, the doers of the law, is he necessarily talking about the person who absolutely obeys every command in the law? Um, I want to read you a quote. One author puts it like this, and I I like this. I'll tell you where I am. I I like this. Could Paul call a person a doer of the law who sins, but who loves God and loves the law and hates his own sins and confesses them and casts himself on the mercy of God revealed in the law itself? I think he could, and I think he does. So I believe verse 13 means... Not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the ones who will be acquitted at the last judgment will be those who love God's law and depend on His help to live according to the truth that they have and trust God for His mercy when they stumble. I think that's what he's talking about. If this were a hypothetical statement, Paul could have said that really, really easy. Uh, he, could, he could have said in verse 13, but the doers of the law, dash, if there were any, there are not, will be justified. But he doesn't say that. He says, but the doers of the law will be justified. Now, a number of commentators have pointed out that there are similarities to other situations. For instance, Luke 1, 5 and 6. You can look it up or I'll read it to you in a minute. Luke 1 Uh, There's this passage as Luke starts out about Zechariah and Elizabeth. They are the parents of John the Baptist. Now listen to what he says in Luke 1, 5 and 6. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah 
of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Now, does that mean that Zechariah and Elizabeth never sinned? That they perfectly obeyed every command of the Lord? It can't mean that, because it would violate everything we find in Scripture. Uh, so what does it mean when he says they were righteous before God, walking blameless in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord? I would say it means they were doers of the law. I think that's what he's talking about, doers of the law. One who does not claim sinless perfection, but he loves God, he's trusting God, he's depending on God, and in the case of Zechariah and Elizabeth, uh, they brought the sacrifices commanded in the Old Testament so they could receive forgiveness, etc., etc. I think what it is, it's parallel to what we see in 2.7, to those who by perseverance and well-doing seek for glory and honor in immortality. He will give eternal life. That, I think that's what he's talking about. I think in 7, he's, he's paralleling this. He's saying, yeah, these are what doers of the law look like. Not perfection, but lovers of God who are trusting God. Now, let, let that sink in for a minute. Now, then we could say, well, who is this? Who does persevere in well-doing? Seeking honor and glory in immortality. Who is truly a doer of the law? And I would say it is those who are being transformed by the Lord Jesus Christ. Just like what we talked about in 2.7. Now a lot of this, I, I don't think he's jumping ahead to that. But I do think he is here in 13. I think the doers of the law are those who come to Christ. And after we come to Christ, do we still sin? Yes, we do. But do we love God? Not perfectly. There's sin right there. We don't love God perfectly with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But we do love God. And we trust God. Primarily, we trust God in the Lord Jesus Christ and what He did to redeem us. To rescue us from the wrath of His Father. To save us from our sins. That is our trust. Those are who the doers of the law are, ultimately, whether Gentile or Jew. Because we know that the Jew is not going to be justified because he perfectly does what his law says. Now, come to 16. Now, whether you connect it with verse 12 or whether you connect it with verse 15, you can decide that. But let me read it. On that day, uh, let me go back and read it with the last part of verse 15. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. On that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now what is clear is, the judgment day is coming. And God is going to judge the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Now when he says there, the secrets of men. Now he talked about in verses 6 through 10, the judgment is going to be based, verse 6, he will render to each one according to his works, according to his deeds. 
But now he says in 16, he is going to judge the secrets of men, the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So when he talks about judging us by our deeds, it's deeper than what these eyes see, than what others see. His judgment is going to go right to the heart. Remember in the Old Testament we read, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. As Bart often mentions, motives. He sees the motives too, and the judgment will take into account even our motives, even the secrets of the heart. Now notice also, he says in 16, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of man. Now, just, I just want to point this out. If you haven't run across it, you probably will someday. Paul says, my gospel. He does this in other places as well. What does he mean by my gospel? There are some who say, Paul's gospel is not like the gospel of the rest of the apostles. He preached a different gospel. And let me just tell you, that's heresy. Uh, Paul's gospel is the same as the gospel the other apostles preached. And it's pointed out, if you want to check it out, go to 1 Corinthians 15. That is the clearest place to see it. When he says, my gospel, he's simply talking about the gospel that is centered in Jesus Christ, by whom God will judge the secrets of men. Now, think with me a little bit. So we get to the end of verse 5. And he talks about, let me just read the whole verse, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So there's a day coming when his judgment's going to be revealed. And then you come down to verse 16, the conclusion of, of uh, this paragraph. And he says, on that day, when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men, by Christ Jesus. So again, the judgment is coming, and it's not, it's not an accident. He wants us to understand this, that the judgment is coming, and we will be accountable to God. And we'll read this very specifically over in chapter 14 later. Rest assured that on that day, God's judgment will be fair and impartial. He will judge us according to our deeds right down to the motives of our hearts. He will play no favorites. No one will be able to say to God on that day, well, God, I I didn't know. Yes, everyone will know. He will not take into account our family background, even our profession on that day, our begging for mercy, none of that. He will judge us according to our deeds as he simply examines our lives. Now, again, we've said this again and again, the judgment will be according to works. He will not favor the Jews because they have the law. They will not be exempt nor will he favor the Gentiles because they do not have the law. He will base his judgment on the revelation that has been received. Now, someone may say, but, I, but I've asked Jesus for forgiveness. I've professed faith in Christ. If you have, if I have, it will be demonstrated on the day of judgment 
by our deeds. It will be very clear on the day of judgment. Now we're not talking about justification by works. We're not talking about doing enough good deeds that God will accept us. Because no one can do that. We're talking about being transformed by the life of Jesus in reality so that on the judgment day, our deeds will demonstrate that change. Now, notice the other thing he says in verse 16. He says, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. I just want to read you a verse. You don't have to look it up. You can look at the context later. John chapter 5, verse 22. Jesus himself said this, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. He's given all judgment to Jesus. We read it in Acts 17 earlier. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And who is that? And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Jesus is the risen Savior, but he is also the righteous judge. Don't ever forget it. Now, where do we fit into all this? especially this paragraph that I've read this morning about Jews and Gentiles. All who have sinned without the law will be judged without the law, will perish without the law. All who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. Where do we fit? Are we the Gentiles in the passage or are we the Jews in the passage? Well, I mean, it doesn't take a... Anybody here have Jewish ancestry. You, you are a Jew by blood birth into this world. Okay, so we're all Gentiles. So that doesn't take a genius to figure that out. But when you go back through this passage, do you kind of sense that we fit the description of the Jews better than the description of the Gentiles? So, so I ask the simple question. Do we have the law of Moses? Yeah, you got it. If it's not between the pages, it's on your cell phone or it's on your iPad or whatever you use. We have the law of Moses. Now, some of us have had more exposure than others, but now now some of us, um, so I, I can pick on y'all some. Did you grow up reading the law of Moses? Some of us did. How many of you would say, even when you were young, you had some knowledge of the Ten Commandments. Yeah, the truth is, in this passage, even though we're, we're Gentiles in the physical sense, in this passage, we fit better with those who have the law. And you know what that ultimately means? It means that the, it doesn't point it out so much in this passage, but it's true in other passages. Even Jesus said it. To whom much is given, much will be required. In other words, the more revelation we have from God, the stricter the judgment will be. That's a, that's a serious thought. So what I'm saying is, 
we, right here, we will not be exempt for any reason from the judgment. We are accountable to God for everything he has given us, including the law of Moses. Not only do we have the law of Moses, but we have the New Testament. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nobody in this room will be able to say to God, I didn't know about your son Jesus. You know. And you will be held. I will be held accountable. So what do we do about it? I ask you, how are you responding? Not just to the law of the Old Testament. How are you responding to the fuller revelation, the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have you come to the point of repentance and faith? Have you been willing to say honestly to God, there is nothing good in me. Even my best deeds are like filthy rags in God's sight. That's what the scripture teaches. That's repentance. Repent and run to Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. There is no other hope. And here's the good news. God will justify you. He will bang the gavel and say, righteous. But that's not all he will do. He will put his spirit within you and begin to transform you so so that on the judgment day, and he looks at your life, and it will demonstrate the righteousness that he's put in you. It will become practical righteousness that will show on the day of judgment. The last thing I need to say is this. So isn't it interesting that in verse 16, when he says, on that day when according to my gospel, God judges. We generally associate the gospel with redemption and salvation and what Jesus did on the cross. But Paul says it's according to the gospel that God judges. Judgment is a part of the gospel. And until we understand that we can appreciate the gospel in its fullness let's pray father as we as we go through romans especially starting back in 118 and we keep plotting through chapter 2 it seems like there is a repeating theme The wrath of God, the judgment of God, impartiality at the judgment, judgment by works, all these things. Oh God, drive it home to us that this is not accidental. You are explaining this in detail because you want us to know at a deep level. Don't let us try to escape and just skip through this quickly so we can get on to the better stuff. Oh God, show us that your light shines brightest in the darkness. And so Lord, let us understand that darkness, judgment, accountability, all of these things, your wrath. But oh God, we we know that there is hope, and that hope is in Christ.
And we're looking forward to getting on over in further in chapter 3. So we read specifically about that. But Lord, even now, you offer to us the good news of Christ. And Lord, for those of us who have come to a place where we responded in repentance and faith, oh Lord, I pray that you would remind us that that's not a one-time deal. That's a lifestyle. Oh God, keep us running to Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those who are here this morning who have heard much, received much revelation, not just the law of Moses, but the gospel of Christ. But are still in great danger of perishing at the final judgment. Oh God, convict them deeply by your Spirit. Open their hearts to the truth. Lead them to repentance and faith. Now let's just think about what this passage has been saying this morning. Father, we thank You that Your Word is true. We never have to worry about sorting out truth and falsehood in Your Word. And where our understanding is weak, and Lord, I, I confess, I can't make this as clear as I'd like to, and it's not totally clear in my mind. So Lord, give us a desire to keep digging, learning, understanding. Not so we can be smart, but so we might with joy appropriate what you say in your word. Thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.